common things that I do that I just say, you know, why is it that it just never seems to work? Uh, one of those would be, um, uh, let's try motorcycles, okay? Every time I've been on a motorcycle, which is about three or four times, something disastrous happens. Now, some of you might say, Jim, you need to get out and try this one again, but camping. Camping, I'm never asked twice by the same family. (laughs) And so when Barb and I go camping, you know, we're saying, well, what will happen this time? We we have no idea. And, and, um, and, you know, and it's not a matter of if something is going to happen. It's going to, it's really what is going to happen and how long can we continue until it does happen. Uh, when you get down to it, the bottom line of what we're talking about here is fear. And I know that in some cases it's your bottom line too. Several years ago, a man by the name of Philip Keller wrote a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And he wanted to explain as an experienced shepherd uh, what King David experienced as a boy. And, and, of course, that hasn't been written down. So as a person who was a shepherd, he writes this book and goes through Psalm 23. And, and he tries to give many insights about what it means to be a shepherd, but also what it means to be a sheep. Now, I haven't had many experiences of being a sheep. But once he explained it, I go, yeah, I'm a sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray, says Isaiah. But it's more than that. Because he says, most of us believe that sheep are stupid animals. Actually, they are quite intelligent. The real problem is they're afraid of just about everything. You see, fear is a controlling feeling that's often based on past experiences and it affects our views of the future. There are little fears that people walk around with. I know some people that hate to fly. They have to take, you know, antidepressants or, or, you know, calming pills just to get them onto the plane. There are some of those. Some people are afraid of strangers, birds, spiders, cats. I don't like cats, but I'm not afraid of them. Now, I'm here to tell you that humanity is a lot like sheep. That we too, like sheep, find ourselves afraid of just about everything. And some of those things we decide we're going to avoid. So, for example, you come to me and say, Jim, you know, this is a fair warning. We are inviting you to go camping with us two months in advance. And I will put my hand on my sh- on your shoulder and look you in the eye. And I will say, I treasure my friendship with you far too much to accept that. Besides, I have a mani-pedi uh, thing coming up on that weekend, so, you know, I need my beauty treatment. I know that something will go wrong. I'm not afraid of camping, but you might say, yes, you are. Well, sometimes I can avoid these things that I know will go bad. And so, whether it's camping or other things, I, I can say, no, You believe me, you don't want to do that. But there's other things that I have to carry around. And in the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about facing fears, the fears that you can't avoid, the fears that seem to consume you, the fears that are deep down in your soul and cause it to shrivel just a little bit. So it's not about uh, avoiding the fears in your life, but if we face them, the question is, how can a trust in Jesus Christ cause me to deal better with them? Now, if you're taking anxiety meds, 
or any type of meds. I am not saying go off of those as a trust, you know, as a test of faith in, in Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that. But I do know this. I do know people who have turned their back on their medications after some great uh, experiences uh, and, and finding that God works. So understand, I'm not saying don't you know, or get off your meds, but I'm saying, why don't you put God to the test and see if his instructions about facing your fears, if they really work. How does God's presence in your life affect your head and your heart and hopefully your behavior? And, 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 and how does uh, facing our fears begin to change the relationships that we cherish most? Now, the ones I'm going to tackle are ones that some of you have shared with me. And, uh, and some of them are the ones that affect me. And I would like to say that because of my superior faith in Jesus Christ... I now longer, I, I now walk through earth and, and in this life, and I am fearless. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what I have to say is like sheep, sometimes I'm just about afraid of everything. Bah. Social scientists say that, if you can believe social scientists have studied this, they have. That sheep buy for many reasons. One of those is they want to make sure there's another sheep buying nearby. They're afraid. I am often afraid. And I'm not talking about when you surprise me in my office and I jump up. I'm talking about the times I can't, you know, that I can't sleep or the, or the times when it just seems to be consuming me. And, and here's the most current one. In 2009, I got a phone call from my financial advisor. He only deals with ministers, the poor guy. But because of my retirement account, had we had decided to put it at higher risk, uh, we also found in 2009 that it was declining uh, more quickly than most others. So he, he told me that several clients had already be, had been in and instructed him to liquidate all stocks from their accounts and find more secure investments. The unfortunate thing is that it had already sunk so much that he said that's a very unwise decision. And then he showed me a, a chart. I, I think he, I, I don't know if it's a real chart or not. If he made it up, it sure did help me. Uh, he showed me the stock market chart from 1929, the Great Depression, when it began in the, in the stock market crash, until, you know, at that time, 2009. And yes, it took a, quite a dip, but it had been like this for all those decades. Now, if I was really smart, I'd say, show me the measurements on each indices. I didn't, but I thought about it later. And then he did something else with me that your financial advisor probably doesn't do. He prayed. He prayed for me. He prayed for my heart. He prayed for my retirement. And I prayed for him. That was a tough job that year. Oh, my gosh. Well, as we look through, uh, you know, what is the effect of that? I realized that one of the things that I was fearing was poverty, financial collapse. And, and as we considered it, you know, the one thing that came to my mind is I'm not the only one who's afraid of this. Uh, 
financial institutions count on this. Do you remember that great commercial where there's an African-American father and his son with their wives at a restaurant and the bill comes? And both of their hands, the father and the son, they reach for the bill. And, and the son gets to it first. His hand is on the bottom. And he pulls it this way. And the father, there's no word spoken. But it shows the father thinking, has it come to this? I hope he's saving. In other words, I hope he's not spending it all on me. I hope he's not a spendthrift. I hope he's saving. And then the camera goes to the son. And the son, also thinking, says, I hope dad's saved enough. It's a universal worry. It's a fear that many of us have. Some of you in those days saw your your whole uh, retirement account wiped out because the corporation made promises that it couldn't keep. You've suffered more than I have. I hope, says your children, that you've saved enough. So how do we begin to face our fears? Well, I'm going to use ones that I think are common, that are deep-seated. And, and the first one is financial collapse. And David writes in Psalm 23, reflecting on his boyhood when he was a shepherd. And, and, and so he, he gives all those thoughts that he did when he had the lousiest job in the, of the ten brothers. The, the one that was always passed on to the next younger one. You're the shepherd. David made the most of it. But now we're looking at Psalm 37 where he's looking back as an older man and giving his reflections. Psalm 23 is a childlike trust. Psalm 37, he describes a weathered and an experiential trust. And so on. Psalm 37, I read just the first few verses. Do not fret, says an old man, okay? Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil, for evil men will be cut off. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. I know this sounds simple. And I know I'm not going to get into fine details and, and, and the exact process. But the main thing he's saying is, when you are afraid, when these visceral uh, common fears come across you, trust in the Lord and not the alternatives. <laughs> I've heard that before, Jim. Well, you need to hear something very specific because he only leads or or leaves us with two alternatives. Uh, There's one, trust in the Lord, and the other one that he lists is, uh, uh, you know, don't don't be like the wicked. And and you want to say, well, wait a minute. Uh, I, I admit that I need growing trust, but I'm not wicked. And David says, I only gave you two alternatives. 
Well, then I must be one who's trusting in the Lord. Because I know I'm not wicked. Friends, I'm wicked. You either are one who is wicked or you're one of the righteous who has placed your trust in God. I'd like to think there's other alternatives. David just doesn't give us the chance. You are one or the other. And as we unravel that securities fraud that took us from about 2005, and and we were warned about it starting in 2007, and especially it hit here in Denver first, until about 2011. We, We understand that just about everybody who was involved with it would say, I, you know, I, I I didn't do anything wrong. I I understand the securities fraud, and I I understand everybody who was involved. I didn't do anything wrong. Wall Street, Washington D.C., mortgage companies, but it actually was also occurring in homes and hearts. If I don't get in now, I will never own a home for myself. You see the. The thought was property values are increasing so rapidly, they're going to continue to increase 8% a year. Oh, friends, if that would be true, I could retire in Hawaii now. It's not true. We saw them go down. But, you know, we look and we say, well, well, then who's at fault? Some have put their fingers at the members of Congress who received special deals for hindering legislation that would more regulate mortgage companies. Others blame mortgage companies because of the way they cut corners or home buyers who were stupid and made minimum down payments seeking the shortest uh, adjustable rate mortgage that they could find, thinking that housing prices would only go up. And, and the securities dealers who fudged with AAA ratings, believing that the bubble would just continue to get bigger and bigger, But it never happens. The tide that comes in always goes out. And the tide that went out went out faster than the tide that went in. It was all good until that term was up and and that value of your house either stabilized or declined. And boy, did that tide go out. Were those people wicked? We'd say, no, they're not wicked. They're competitive. It was now or never. Were they greedy? I think so. We had one family in our church in that predicament. I personally went to them and I said, if it's a matter of short-term payments on your house, I promise you, you won't lose your house. And the man looked at me, the, the dad, and he goes, Jim, you don't get it. And I realized I have a business degree. I took finance classes and real estate classes, but I didn't get it. There was no way unless he had an infusion of over $100,000 that he said I could never pay back, there was no way that he could keep his house. To his credit, trying to be one who was righteous, trying to be one who was trusting in the Lord, uh, the property manager took it over, said he left it clean. He left it intact. We can sell it just like it is. That's to his credit. Was that person wicked? No. Was that person encouraged and, and maybe said it's now or never and maybe just a little bit greedy? Yes. Naive? Absolutely. We all are when we're in a bubble. So David's answer, though simple, says trust in the Lord and not the alternatives. Trust God over the economic speculation of our times. There will be another one in your lifetime. There's threats of, it, of another one happening right now. You, no one's going to say they're wicked. I, you know, I'm not going to be thrown in jail. But those are the alternatives that David gives. 
He goes on to say, another way of thinking about trust is to delight yourself in the Lord. And when you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. To delight means find your greatest joy in God. To delight means to experience extreme satisfaction or gratification. I delight in the Broncos until the score in about three hours. I delight in them. Five and oh on such a bad offense. Man, I'm laughing. I delight in uninterrupted time with Barb. I delight in long meals with family and friends. I delight in the satisfaction of sleeping in till half past noon, whenever that can happen. I delight in those things. And you know, when you delight in something and you really find extreme long-term joy in it, what is it that you want after that? I'll tell you, you want more. You always want more. This brought me so much pleasure. I want more, please. Let me sleep three more hours. I'll I'll be fine. Of course we want more. We're we're wired that way. It's not a bad thing. The the term delight, however, according to David, uh, is found six times in the whole... uh, No, it's found about 12 times in the whole Bible. But six of those times are in Psalm 119. Where the psalmist, not David, writes, these are the effects that God's word has on me. That that when I read it, I meditate it, and I act on it, I delight. I want more. One of the ways that you delight in God is by understanding what is in his word and soaking in it and enjoying it and, and taking it in. And by delighting in him, we understand that the fears are driven away. Next thing he used, a very another similar word, because he said trust, delight. Then he says, commit your ways to the Lord. Trust him and he will do this. We have several commitments in our lives that, that we're encouraged uh, to excel at. We are encouraged to excel at our family commitments and other relationships in our lives. We're encouraged in our financial responsibilities. We're encouraged in, in terms of our work and, and, and our reputation. Um, We're encouraged to commit to these things. And David urges us to commit our life to God and see him work in that commitment. And one result is that fear that can cause us to curl up within ourselves in what I call self-protection can instead become a trust in God that allows us to live beyond ourselves. So in the next verse, uh, he says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pastures. When he's getting at that, he's saying that the behavior of your life can affect your inner attitudes and your inner attitudes can affect your outside behavior. So you put these two together. You put fear and your behavior together and that will lead you to decisions and activities of self-protection. Now, fear is sometimes a good thing and I'll get to that in the weeks ahead. But trust in God as an inner attitude can lead us to better works, better decisions. Because if I'm controlled by my fears, I will not risk myself. I will not reach out to others. If I trust in God, I will extend, I'll go beyond myself to the needs of others. I'm going to put it this way. I have in my hand uh, several $20 bills. 
And I, I wanted a fistful, but the ATM wouldn't let me do it. Would any of you trust me with about 10 more $20 bills? No. No? Okay. All right. I just thought I'd ask. Um, I'm holding these. And as I'm holding these and I'm looking at them, and as you know, I'm, I'm a, I grew up a miser, counting my money almost every day. Uh, as I'm holding these, something is going through my mind. It's October. And now for the next six months, my utility bills are going to rise. More than that, um, more than my utility bills rising, uh, the holidays are coming. And they've never been more expensive than they will be this year. I mean, i got a seven-year-old grandson, and he deserves everything. So, and, and, and more than that, uh, I'm expecting major repairs in my car. And did you know that right after Thanksgiving... There is a tool sale, power tool sale at Home Depot that just is, you can't, you can't say no. So I, I'm thinking of all these things, but then suppose that someone in my family comes up and that family member looks at me and says, I just got laid off. And to be honest with you, I don't have enough for groceries for my family. And I don't know if I'm going to pay rent. Here it is. What do I say? I know I have all this. As I see him coming and I know of his situation and I know that he's going to be asking for money, do I suddenly, you know, hold on and hide it? That's fear for my condition. That I need that money more. If he takes it, I may never see it again. Or do I look at him and say, let's do the King Super Strip. I'm buying. Your family will eat. You see what we're getting at here? We're, we're getting at what are the behaviors of, of those who trust in the Lord versus the wicked. He says it in verse 26. They are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be blessed. And can I say something? I, I find it's better if I don't lend. I just give it. Just That's just me. It's not everybody. Because not everybody should be given things. But but I find that it, you know, that I say, you know, that's money that I should never expect to get back. That Again, that's just me. So, what do I do? How do I deal with this? Do I say, sorry, I'm broke? Not yet, but I'm planning on being broke. Or do I say, in trust, let's go get your groceries now. I know where I want to live, and I know where I also too often do live. I know where I want to spend too much time, and I want to spend too much time in fear of financial misfortune. Why? I've been through it several times. I grew up in it. I want to delight in the Lord so that I will have more trust. Well, in this psalm, there are several what I call trust builders. Ways in which you can, uh, you might say, experiment with God. See how God works as you do these things. And the first trust booster that's in verse 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently on Him. So, 
You might say David now, as a trust booster, wants us to move from bah to believing God. And the first way is to wait on God. What is waiting? Waiting on God is a confidence that he is working both in the world and in your life. You're not passive when you wait. But neither do you say, I'll play God. God, get aside. This is, this is what I'm going to do. You're waiting on to, on, uh, to discover what exactly he, he is doing. One person has described it as the difference between an if faith and a through faith, or a though faith. An if faith and a though faith. What's the if faith? If faith says, I will do this if God does this first. God, prove yourself, and then I will respond. A through faith says, evil may prosper, but I will trust you through it. My finances are shaky, I trust you through it. Though there has been no change for months, though there has been no change for months, I am trusting you, a through and a though faith. The next advice he gives us is move beyond controlling worry. There is a word that he uses there. I don't know what it is in your Bible, but it says fret. Do not fret. I don't use that word very often. Do you? I'm fretting. Um, uh, It's it's an English word that has its own meaning, but, but the original one that David used, fretting means to be blazing up inside. In other words, a fire that's gone beyond kindling, but it's it's just burning on its own. And and it's only found four times in the entire Old Testament, and three times are in the psalm. Don't fret, don't fret, don't fret. Picture an internal flame consuming you. You had a burrito last night with ghost chilies in it, okay? And and it's just it just won't go away. You cannot fall asleep. Picture that as your internal attitude of fretting. We think, as an example, that the way, you know, you know, we begin to think that if maybe I, I, you know, if I fret enough, I can come up with a solution. But the solution you'll probably come up with is a bad one, and I'll explain in just a minute. What you're trying to do is douse that blazing up with the promises of God that are made in this psalm. And here's the promise. God takes care of the wicked. You do not. God takes care of them. You do not. You take, you take care of being righteous before him, of being trusting before him. The next tip he gives is recognize where this fretting and this anger leads. Let me read verses 8 and 9. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. It's put right next to fretting. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope on the Lord will inherit the land. Now that's a promise that is given for those who say, yes, I'm going to trust God. And I don't know how it's going to work out, um, but that's what I'm choosing to do. But notice what what fretting and anger they seem to work together, and and together when you when you when you control by fretting and and then you understand that the wicked seem to be winning, uh, that it's going to result in evil in your life. It only leads to evil. Here's what we do: we we, we are fretting, saying this is how somebody 
has treated me. The next thing we do is we say, he got away with it. And there's nothing wrong going. The next thing we say is, well, I can do the same if it's not, you know, if there's no consequences, I'll do the same. We'll say, that's justice. I'm just getting what I lost. We call it justice. Instead, ask yourself, what would it take for me to do what this person has just done to me? What would it take? I thought of that several times this week. What would it take for me to act like a wicked person? The first answer was very simple. Not much. What would it take for me to fall down the stairs right here? Not much. One more step. What would it take? Not much. The other thing that it would take is the conscious removal of God from the leadership of my life. Instead of honoring him, I'm going to panic about honoring myself. And the final thing, and I realize for those of you who are under 50, and I I love that there's so many here and your children are getting blessed here, and, and I love all that. David is an old man now, and he expresses a true reality that I want you to grasp. And I hope all of us can. At the end of the psalm, he says, I was young, and now I am old. In all these years, he says, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. We tend to lose our trust in God because we're only watching what is happening in the breaking news of the disasters going on in the world. They're the ones that get the headlines and all the airtime. The normal person never gets on television. Now, I'm not saying sell your television, but understand this, that the lessons of David's, Solomon's, Daniel's, the Esther's of the Bible, they all come forward and they say this, God takes care of his children. God takes care. Now, I had to think about that, and I also have to say, wait a minute, what about what's going on to the Middle East with Christian suffering there? The worst persecution since um, uh, worst persecution since the Middle Ages, and many have to escape. Some are compromising, and way too many have been martyred. Um, in these days of Islamic extremism, Christians are more than financially insecure; they're existentially insecure. They could lose their lives. So I, I'm aware of that. But we're talking about here in just societies like David's and like I believe ours still is. God takes care of his children. And King David now is looking back and saying, you know, in my old age, I've gone through many things. If you check the life of David, what is, what's gone in, he's had betrayal, abandonment, insurrection, He's been in exile uh, probably almost as much as, as he was king. He spent a lot of his life running, not ruling. And yet he could say that God cares for and protects his children. 
He gives them the ability to work without the shame of begging. So whether it is fear of financial collapse or any of the other soul-shriveling fears that we carry around, I want to leave you with Paul's words, and we'll chew on these as well as some of the other fears in the future. We're, you know, we dealt with financial collapse. We'll deal with failure, rejection, failing health, death itself in the weeks ahead. But Paul writes to Timothy, and when he writes him, he says very simply, Timothy, you're, you've now stepped into my shoes. People are taking advantage of you. You're much younger than me. You don't have the education I do. And so you're a timid person or a fearful person. And he says to Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity. But then he says, a spirit of power. And I want to just continue not using the exact words, but the same words, a spirit of love and the spirit of a sound mind. A spirit of power, a spirit of love, and the spirit of a sound mind. Good judgment. So in the weeks ahead, I hope that you can talk as family units and be honest with one another in your homes, in your small groups, in your classes, what is your greatest fear? What is it right now? We're wired to be afraid. What is your greatest fear? And be able to smile and say, bah. Let your trust grow in God to care for his children. Let's pray. Lord, this week, I heard about broken relationships, empty bank accounts, people struggling on what they call a fixed income. the unemployed who've had to go onto the government safety net for the first time in their lives. I've heard the fear of those who are in big, big debt. The fear of those whose jobs are insecure. The fear of those with legal troubles. What David said from looking back and his experience with you. May we see you at work even now. And we simply ask, Lord, show yourself so that we understand our trust is well-placed in you. We're not asking that we snap our fingers and everything goes away. But show yourself. Bring justice to the wicked. And as you've promised, take care of your children. Take care of your children. And may we as a church be aware of where the children of this fellowship need your care. And we simply ask this in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen.